Today, I want to keep walking through this series, Questioning God, and all we've been doing is walking down the hallway of doubt, walking in some doorways of people's questions, or maybe another way to say it is their hang-ups, hang-ups they have about God. They're things that maybe keep them from wanting to become a Christian. They're hang-ups that keep them from wanting to go to church, wanting to be a person of faith, things like that. And so if you haven't been here, I'd encourage you to go online, check out what we've already talked about. We've already talked about hell. Uh, Is hell real? Would God really send people there? Uh, We talked about exclusivity. Is Jesus really the only way? Uh, We talked about pain and suffering. If God's real, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? Just real questions. We're just running into this. We even talked one week on doubt. Is it okay for me to doubt? And what do I do with my doubt? And so if you haven't been here, we just have had to try to have some intellectual and honest conversation about real questions that people have. Today, I want to talk about the question of hypocrisy. And the question of hypocrisy, in short, is simply this, that people have a hang-up, not necessarily with God, but with the church. And so for some people, the hang-up they have or the question they have for and about and with God has to do and revolves around this thing called the church. And so there are a lot of people who feel much like Gandhi. If you remember his words, he said, I like your Christ, I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And some of you feel that way. Like some of you in the room, it, I, I would imagine, I mean, this is your hang-up. Your hang-up is with the church, and you maybe have a hang-up with the church because you've seen the church hurt people, you've seen the church be hypocritical, whatever it might be. But for some of you in the room, or people you know, maybe this is why your husband won't come with you, right? It's like, nah, I'm not about the church. Or maybe this is why your young adult son won't come with you. It's like, yeah, you know, I got a relationship with God, but I'm not about the church. And so it's kind of like this, I love Jesus, it's the church I hate. Jesus, great, church I hate kind of deal, right? For others of you in the room, you're like, man, I'm almost offended that we're going to talk about this, right? If we're just being honest, and the reason you're offended is because you love the church, right? You grew up in the church like, oh, man, I can't even believe that we would even question this and wonder about this. And can I just talk to you for a second? Here's the deal. I love the church too. Obviously, God loves the church. But we got to own some of this question. Like, like we, we do. We just got to own it. And, and I think the best way for us to do that is just to run right into it instead of skirt from it. Question goes kind of like this. People have question. I kind of split it into two parts. Uh, but, but the first is this. I believe in God. Why do I need the church? And so people ask this question. It's like, you know, I'm all about Jesus and my faith is individual. And so they would look at their faith and say, uh, my faith is individual and it's private. And so I worship better on a mountaintop. I worship better by a river. I don't need the church, right? Uh, and, and so the, the idea there is, for some people, it's like church is almost distracting for me. Uh, I'm very individualistic. God and I, we're okay. I have people tell me that all the time, like, God and I, we're tight, uh, but I don't really need the church. Other people who struggle with this, here's what they say, the church seems irrelevant. And so they would say this, you know, the church seems like it's full of a bunch of weird people, talk about weird things that don't necessarily uh, relate with what's going on in the real world. And in fact, listen close, I hang out every Sunday night, which by the way, if you're one of those young adults he was talking about, love for you to come tonight, but I hang out every Sunday night with with young adults. It's one of my favorite times of the week. And uh, I will tell you this, I I went to Virginia Beach with them and said, you know, what is one of your friend's biggest hangups about the church? And some of them said this, it just seems irrelevant that what happens in the church doesn't necessarily correlate into the world. It doesn't have any kind of connection. And so they would say it's irrelevant. Uh, which begs then, there's another question that people have, and that's this, well, why in the world should I trust the church? And the reason they would ask this question is this, and some of you, these are your questions. You're like, man, you're talking my language. Some of these people ask this question because they would say this, the church is full of hypocrites. 
You know, the way this question goes is my neighbor goes to church and they're no better than me. Or maybe even get more personal. Our family goes to church and I watched my dad. He was one way at church. Everybody, he was like this great guy at church. But man, when he got home, he was a different way, right? It's kind of the, the argument of hypocrisy. It's like they're one way in church and they're another way at home. Or the question of the church has done so much harm. Over the years, the church has done so much harm, and you can look back over church history, and the church is responsible for uh, injustice in people's minds, and maybe it's done harm to you. And so it's like, I'm out, right? I'm out. And then another reason that people would ask this question, why should I trust, trust the church, is because there's some people, they look at the church and like, man, it's full of fanatics, Right? And, and so I've talked to people like this, like, man, yeah, my friend, they started going to church and all of a sudden they got rid of all their old clothes. They started wearing this witness wear. They started handing out tracks, got rid of their TV. I don't even know them anymore. It's like, what's going on, right? Or I've talked to college students who are like, man, the church and Christianity and their exposure to it is this. Uh, my exposure to church and Christianity is, is simply this guy that showed up every Thursday afternoon on campus with a box and a bullhorn. And he just began to yell at people about God, hell, and the Bible, right? And so they're like, man, that's just, it's fanatical. I don't want anything to do with it. These are real questions, by the way. And, and, and they're questions that people have about the church. Maybe you have about the church. So here's what I want to do, and then we'll fly, okay? So I just want to break this conversation into two parts. I want to talk about, okay, well, what is the church? Because we've got to know what it is that we're struggling with, right? So let's talk about what is the church, and then let's answer some of these questions, so we're going to talk about what is the church when it comes to the message of Christianity, the Bible, what does Jesus say about the church, and then we're going to talk about the questions that we just, just brought to the forefront of our conversation today. Now, when you get to the New Testament, which is the second part of your Bible, that's where you begin to see this word church. In Greek, you can impress your friends, okay, later, the, the word church is simply ekklesia. You're like, why did you say that? Well, here's why, because that word, the Greek word, means a gathering of people, and so in brief, here's what I want you to know about the church. I say it all the time, but if you're newer here, I want you to hear me say it. That means this, that when the New Testament talks about the church, it's talking about people, not a place, not a service. And so when I see that, understand that, here's what I realize. When God talks about the church in the New Testament, he's talking about a people of worship, not necessarily a place of worship. Now that's different than us, right? We're like, let's go to church. We're talking about a place, a location, an address. But when the New Testament talks about church, it's talking about a people of worship. When it talks about church in the New Testament, it talks about people that are serving together, not necessarily people that are sitting in a service together. You see, there's a difference, okay? And so we'll say church is what I'm attending. I'm attending the church service, right? When actually, can I change our terminology a little bit? This is a gathering of the church, because church simply means a gathering of people. And so what we do every Sunday is we gather. And so this is the gathering. This is not church. We're not doing church right now. We are the church, right? And so we're a gathering of the church. And when you get to the New Testament, there's three pictures that are fascinating that will help us answer people's objections to the church. And maybe your questions today. Now, I'm not saying I'm going to try to twist your arm and convince you. I just think if we understand what's God's picture of the church, it will help us, okay, I got some problems with the church, or I got some struggles, or I had a bad experience in the church, and these pictures will help us with that. And so I just simply want to look at these three pictures. And I want you to write down some things on your notes. First is this. Let's talk about this first. When you go to the New Testament, you find that the church is Jesus' building. It's Jesus' building. You're saying, Dan, I thought you said it wasn't a building. It's not, but look at what Jesus says. He says, I tell you that you're Peter. He's talking to Peter, obviously. He says, on this rock, 
He's talking about on this rock of what he just proclaimed, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now listen real close. I want you to write this down somewhere. Jesus is the builder. The church is the building. Jesus is the builder. The church is the building. So when I look at that, this is what Jesus is building. Listen real close. If you're going to build something, you're going to look for the best what? Best builder, right? And so when it comes to the church, we've got a pretty good builder. Anybody agree with that? We've got a pretty good builder. Jesus said, I'm the one who's going to be building the church. And then the building is simply people who follow Jesus. That's what the church is. And so when it comes to Jesus being the builder, can we say two things and then move on? But if he's the builder, that means it's going to be a pretty good construction. And he says, even the gates of Hades aren't going to be able to overcome it. That means two things. You might want to write this down somewhere. That means the church is going to persevere and it's going to prevail. It's going to persevere and it's going to prevail. You're saying, why are you using those two words? Because here's what I will tell you. Hell has tried to extinguish the church. You're like, really? Yes. And it still does. You're like, what do you mean? Well, when you read about the story of the church, we will, this is a different sermon, but you know right out of the gate in the book of Acts, guess what happens? Church is born and guess what happens? All of a sudden, persecution breaks out. They're trying to squish this movement called the church. And you can take that and see that right from the beginning of this thing called the church, that Satan, hell, has tried to extinguish the church. And even today, that's what's happening. And yet Jesus says that, that the church is going to persevere. In fact, you're like, it's happening today? Yeah, we just don't know about it much because we're pretty comfortable, right? But let me read you some stats that might open your eyes to a reality maybe you didn't know. Even now, Open Doors USA says this. Listen close. Each month, okay, each month, 322 Christians on average are killed for their faith because they belong to Christ. There's about that many of y'all in this room right now. So 322 each month. 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed each month. 772 forms of violence against Christians each month. Pew Research Center said this, over 75% of the world's population lives in areas of religious restriction. Our own U.S. department says Christians in more than 60, 60, not six, countries face persecution from their government or surrounding neighbors because of their belief in Jesus. And yet Jesus said this, I'm building this church and Satan's going to try to extinguish it and yet it's going to persevere, is what he says. And here's what we know, you can read this throughout church history and you can even see this today, that where the church, listen close, undergoes persecution, something fascinating happens. It flourishes. It flourishes. So the more it's persecuted, the more, in fact, I'll give you a modern day example. The tiny church in Iran, tiny church in Iran was at risk of extinction because of persecution. And now guess what the fastest growing church in the world is? Church in Iran. It's fascinating, right? Jesus says this, I'm building this thing. Satan, hell, all that, ain't gonna be able to stop it. But it not just perseveres, it prevails. You see, when the Bible uses this word gates, it's a protection. So he says, hell's trying to protect people from knowing the gospel. And here's the point. Here's the picture. He's saying, Jesus is going to knock down those gates. <laughs> like hell can't stop the gospel from getting where it needs to go. That's what he's saying. It's going to persevere. It's going to prevail. All of that led a guy named Paul to say this in the book of Ephesians, which you have open in your lap in chapter 2. 
So if you're looking at your Bible, go to chapter 2. If you don't feel comfortable with the Bible, you look with me on the screen. Chapter 2, verse 19. It says, Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building, he's talking about the church, is joined together, I want you to remember that, and rises to become this holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Here's what I want you to see. We're going to just make a few points. Jesus is not just the builder, but guess what? In this passage, it says he is the chief cornerstone. Now, you might be sitting there and say, what in the world does that mean? Which would be a great question. Here's all a cornerstone is. is simply when they would have built a building, the cornerstone, they would have laid down first and the rest of the building would have been lined up on that cornerstone. It was the aligning stone for the building. That's what it was. You're saying, okay, what's the point in terms of our discussion about the church? Here's what the church is. The church is simply, we can throw the next up there. We are lives lined up on Jesus with each other. We are simply lives that are lined up on Jesus and we are lined up together. That's what the church is. That he, when somebody comes to Christ and they say yes to Jesus, they are lining their life up with Jesus. And here's what he says. The moment I line my life up with Jesus, say yes, I believe you are exactly who you said you were. You're the savior. I become part of this church and I am connected to everyone else who has lined their life up with Jesus. It's fascinating through all generations, which makes me think of something that a guy named Peter said. I want you to stay with me because this is a beautiful picture and it'll help us answer some objections later. So he says, as you come to him, the living stone, that's Jesus, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. So here's what he's saying, and then I want to show you something. He's saying this, that when we line our lives up on Jesus, he's the living stone. The minute I say yes to Jesus, I come alive spiritually. That's what he's saying. I become this living stone. And so he's building this, this church full of people who line their lives up on Jesus. And this picture tells me something. And I want you to write it down. It means this building of people that Jesus is building, he uses, I want you to write it this way, diverse and imperfect building material. You're saying, well, how are you getting that? Well, notice what he calls us. He says, when you come to the living stone, you become living what? Stones. He doesn't say living what? Bricks. Because it's a very different picture. When we think of building a building, we think of the picture on the right. All the bricks are uniform, all the same, all nice and neatly fit together. But when they would have written this, the way they would have built buildings would have been very different than that. It would have been a picture where there have been all these different kinds of stones brought together to form one grand building. The picture on the left is what God pictures when he pictures the church. He brings together diverse and imperfect people for this building. Here's what it tells me about the church. Listen close. It means the church is full of diverse people. It means this thing that he's building is rich and poor sitting side by side, lined up on Jesus. It means men and women side by side. It means black, white, Hispanic side by side. Republican, Democrat side by side. The artsy with the athletic side by side. The misfit with mainstream side by side. 
That's a pretty cool picture, isn't it? It's a pretty cool picture that he uses diverse building material, but it's not just diverse building material. He uses imperfect building material. These stones are not perfectly looking like a brick, but he brings together these imperfect, diverse stones, and the gospel is what he uses to bring them together, to, to, to fit them together, to make this picture called the church. That means this, that in this thing called the church, not only is there diversity side by side, but literally in this thing called the church, there's imperfect people side by side. That means this, the inmate, ready? The inmate sits right beside the seminary student in God's church. That means the recovering alcoholic right beside the recovering Pharisee in God's church. That means the prostitute right beside the recovering church lady gossip in God's church. That means the hothead is sitting right beside the choir boy in God's church. You see how that works? You see, he uses imperfect building material to build this thing called the church. And he aligns it all on the perfect cornerstone. The church is Jesus building. Now, there's a second picture. I want you to write this down. It's going to make sense as we answer objections. Not only is it his building, but the church is Jesus' body. The church is Jesus' body. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says this, Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Go clear down to the last line. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Here, here's the picture. I want you to write this down. In this picture, Jesus is the head. We, or the church, is the body. Jesus is the head. We, or the church, is the body. You get asked this question from time to time. People will say to me, well, Jesus, when he was 30-some years old, left. Where is he at today? It's fascinating, isn't it? That's a great question. And if I read my Bible right, the church is the body of Christ. So where's Jesus today? He's where the body of Christ is. And where's the body of Christ? The church. It's interesting. It led Paul in your Bibles in the book of Ephesians. If you'll just flip a few pages back to chapter 4, look what he says. Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that there's our word body of Christ built up until we all reach unity in the faith and a knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, remember that, become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's maturity, by the way. Then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, we'll speak the truth in love, we'll grow and become in every respect mature, there's our word again, body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Jesus is the head, the church is the body. I want you to write this down. This tells me that we are connected to Jesus and we are connected to each other. That's what the picture helps me see. Stay with me on this. I want to make sense of this so as we answer questions at the end. The, the answer, the, the, the picture is this. Jesus is the head. The moment I say yes to Jesus, I become part of this body. That means this. If he's the head, the body takes its direction from who? The head. In fact, if you were to ask me this question, Dan, who's the leader of this church? If I were to answer you and be accurate, I would say, Jesus, I certainly hope. Why? He's the head. He's the leader. 
And so here's what he's saying is like the head is what gives direction to the body. So Jesus, no body, right, is like a head with no body. The body without a head is like a decapitated body. It's, 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 they go together. And so when you hear the question, well, I kind of like the head but not the body, it's like, I kind of like the body, but I'm not sure about the head, right? It's like, no, no, it's not either or, but it's both and. And so here's the picture. He says, this body is the church. And so literally, it's many parts that form one body. You don't look up there and say, wow, look at Dan. There's two legs, two arms, two hands. You don't like go individual through the parts of my body. You're like, there's Dan, right? There, that's him. He's like one body. He's one person. That's the picture. And so what he says is he takes these many parts of the body and he puts them exactly how he wants them in the body of Christ. There is no room for inferiority. Oh, they don't need me. And no room for arrogance and independence. I don't need them. But each part has a role and serves to function the purpose of the head. Let me show you what I mean by that. This is so trivial and simple, but I want you to get the picture. Because you're like, well, that's stupid. It makes sense when you see this. But if my head says, go greet Josh. It's my friend Josh in the front row. So my head says that. Go greet Josh. Well, my head saying that gives direction to what? My body. And my whole body has to respond together. So my head is saying, go greet Josh. My feet are going to start walking. My legs and my knees are going to start bending. And I'm going to look him square in the eye. And I'm going to shake his hand. And I'm going to smile. And I'm going to say, I'm glad you're here. All of a sudden, the whole of my body is responding to my head. You would be like, what in the world would happen if there was a part of me, like if my right leg said, yeah, I don't think this time. The rest of you go without me, right? <laughs> you, I'm, this is crazy, right? It's, it's, like this, it's like, that's a stupid illustration. Yes, I think that's why Jesus uses it. I think God's like, you're the body. And so take direction from the head, but you're all connected. So we're going to go there. Right leg's going to go. Left foot's going to go. Left hand. Left, it's all together taking direction from the head. But there's something else the body tells me, and that's this. Not only are we connected to Jesus and to each other, but we're always growing and maturing. We're a body. And just like a baby is not a finished product, Right? I'm looking down here to my right. Don't you guys stare? But there's a little fellow sitting down there. If, if, if I brought him up here in 10 years, he's not going to look like he does right now. Right? Why? He's going to grow. He's going to mature. And some of you are looking. Like, I want to see who you're talking about, right? But he's going he's to look different. He's going to be big. I don't know how old he is, but he's going to be a teenager more than likely. He's going to have different conversations. Look here a second. The body of Christ is growing and maturing. The reason some of you have gotten hurt, ready, in your past church experience is you ran into a church that was in its terrible twos. I'm not making excuses. Or some of you ran into a church that was exercising some rebellious teenage years, and you're like, "Woo! what happened there? You see, this picture helps me because the body is not a finished product. It is in process, which leads to the last. And I'm going to fly through this, but the the church is a building. It's a body, and the church is Jesus' bride. It's Jesus' bride. Now, this is fascinating to me. I want to throw a long passage of Scripture that I read at almost every wedding because it is the flagship passions in the Bible about marriage. And so I want you to lean in. I want to talk to you for a second. Ephesians 5. 
Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. Husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we're members of his body. For this reason, man going to leave mom and dad, be united to his wife, to become one flesh. And then he says this. By the way, this wasn't a marriage talk. It was, but not completely. He said, this is a mystery, but I'm talking to you about Christ and the church. However, each of you must love his wife as he loves himself. Wife must respect her husband. Listen close. Those of you who are married, want to get married someday, we're married, want to look, whatever it might be, wherever you're at in this scenario, when you go to the Bible, the most profound picture for marriage is this thing called the gospel, Christ's relationship with his church. That is the most profound picture for marriage. And so it becomes the picture for your marriage. It becomes the power for your marriage. You see, when it comes to the church, Jesus is the husband, and the church, or we are the bride. And, 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 and what this picture does for me is it helps me understand that Jesus is committed to his bride. There's this covenant relationship. Let me teach you something about marriage. Marriage is a covenant relationship. It's a covenant relationship. It is not a consumer relationship. It's not a consumer transaction. So that word covenant, literally when you, when you see a man's going to leave father and mother, he's going to cleave to his wife, he's going to be glued together. Here's what marriage is. I'm going to do a wedding at 3.30 today down in Worcester, okay? And I, I'm going to say this in their, their little ceremony, Okay? But, but here's what it is. It's not a husband and wife standing there on their, their, their wedding day and telling everybody how much they love each other on that day. Can we just say something? Most grooms and most brides on their wedding day are in love, right? They're all lovey-dovey, right? Most. Some of you are looking at each other like, most, okay? <laughs> That's not what they're doing today. Okay, you're like, they're not? Nope. And I tell couples that when I meet with them. You know what they're doing? They are declaring a future love for each other. That's what exchanging your vows is about. Here's what they're saying. I promise I'm not going anywhere. Really? What if we're poor? We're going to be, and I'm going to be with you, right? <laughs> right? What if, what, if we're, what if some sickness happens? I'll be there. What if it makes me not look like I do right now? You can pencil me in. I'm not going anywhere. You're like, why is that important? Guys, get the beauty of this. That covenant creates security. Some of you lean in, and it's only in that security will you ever experience intimacy. You don't got to perform. You don't got to prove yourself to each other. I promise I'm going to be there. Well, think about the picture. You know what Jesus says the moment you say yes? You know what he says? I ain't going anywhere. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You serious? 
Imagine that. He says, the moment you say yes, I'm not going anywhere. Security, and I can have intimacy with the Almighty. That is mind-blowing, right? You see, this passage tells me he's the husband, we're the bride. And it also tells me that we're the objects of his sacrificial love, right? We're the objects of his sacrificial. How much did Jesus love his bride? He gave his life for her. By the way, husbands, all the, hus- all the men in the room, just listen up. Look here a second. That is our model and picture and power of how we're to love our wives. Guys, if you're here with your girlfriend, listen up. And girlfriends, if you're here with your guys, listen up. That's the model. It's not like, well, she knows I love her, man. I'll bring a paycheck home, put a roof over her head, right? You know, she knows we've been married a long time, right? <laughs> That's not it. You see, the model is Christ. I'm looking in this room. In fact, this guy's in this room right now. His wife is not with him today. But I, was, I don't do this to y'all, but, but I happened to be walking at Silver Creek, and there was a guy who from this campus was there with his wife, and I was creeping on him. They didn't know I was there. <laughs> but they've been married 50, 60 years. I don't know. They live right down the road from me. And I watched them interact with each other, and I watched them grab each other's hand, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. What a picture. And I, and I talked to this man. He's got such a tender, gentle spirit. And I think they love each other more now than they did the day they got married. You see, that's the picture. And, and, and so the bride, the church, were the objects of his love. But I love this. I love the fact that we're not just the objects of his love, but he's committed to making us beautiful. I'm like, wow, that's interesting. See, I tell every married couple this. See if I can get an amen on this. Ready? Listen close. The day you get married, you ready? You're not marrying a finished product. Any amens on that? Yeah, some of you are like, I don't know if I should say that or not, right? I got it. But let me just tell you about Jennifer. She, the day she married, she had no idea what an unfinished product she was marrying. My wife had no idea. But you know what she did? The day she committed to me, she committed to the process of who Jesus was making me to be. I'm glad about that. Because he is interested in our transformation. You see, Jesus is the groom and he's committed to the process of us becoming more and more like Christ. Why? Because the gospel is about him, him grabbing the hand of people who are an absolute mess. They're broken and they're lost. And he says, I'm committed. You can pencil me in. And I'm committed to the process of making you beautiful. What might not happen overnight, it probably won't. What a powerful picture. We're we're the building, diverse, imperfect. We're the body, connected to each other, taking direction from the head, growing up, maturing. And we're the bride. Objects of his sacrificial love, he's committed to making us beautiful. Which makes interesting if we go back and answer some of the objections or questions or hang-ups people have when it comes to the church. I just kind of want to walk through them one by one and then, then we're done, okay? But when I go back to some of the questions people have about the church, I go back to the question, is it okay to love Jesus and not the church? Well, let's think about it in light of what Jesus says about the church. That's kind of like me coming to Jesus and saying, you know, Jesus, I love you. I just hate what you're building. 
Sounds funny, doesn't it? It's like coming to Jesus and saying, you know, Jesus, you got a nice face, but your body needs some work, right? Don't try that one on your wife or your husband, right? If you do, tell me how that goes. Right? I mean, you're like, damn, that's crazy. Yeah. Like, it doesn't make sense. Or, or imagine coming to me and say, Dan, you know, I, I really like you. I, I love you. But your wife, whoo, I can't stand her. Can I tell you something? Can I just, we ain't going to be close. I'm, I'm just being honest with you. Why? Her and I are one. We're one. You see, I say that, and it's funny to hear you put it in that context, but, but virtually speaking, when you look at the pictures Jesus gives of the church, you can't separate Jesus from his church. Warts and all. Warts and all. Which leads to the question of, well, Dan, my faith is individual. I'm kind of a private person. I want you to write this down somewhere. It's worth writing, even if you disagree with me, and it's okay if you do. But here's what I want you to write down. My faith is always personal, but never private. Faith is always personal, never private. Think about it in light of the picture. When you say yes to Jesus, you become part of a building that's connected to everyone else that says yes to Jesus. When you say yes to Jesus, you become part of a body that is connected to the head, connected with all the other parts of the body. Can I just tell you something? First century Christians, absolutely, it was a foreign idea for them to divorce their Christian experience from the community called the church. It was foreign. They never would have thought of it. It's like, that doesn't even cross our... Those two things cannot be separated, which leads to a question in our modern-day society. Well, can I just watch it online? Well, sure, I love the fact that we have technology. Can I tell you something about online? You, at the, the stroke of your finger, can listen to the most phenomenal preachers, speakers, listen to the most phenomenal worship at the stroke of your finger. And so you don't need to leave your bedroom to, to listen to the most phenomenal worship music, to hear preachers that are 100 times better than the one you hear on Sunday That's just the reality, and here's the deal. I would say use those resources, leverage those resources, but Hebrews 10 says this. It says, let us hold swervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. You see, there's a reason we gather together. We worship together. We learn together. We group together. We serve together. There's a reason. In fact, when you get to First Peter, I didn't have this in, in any notes or slide or anything, but, but Satan is called a roaring what? Anybody know? Roaring lion. What's a roaring lion do? He looks at the pack and he waits till one is what? isolated. You see, the moment I isolate, I become vulnerable to the very one who wants to destroy. You see, we are not a place that, go to church. That's, that, no, like there's, like this, we're, we are the church. And it's like, he says, I want you to be together. Guys, just imagine that some of you are sports fans. By the way, in two weeks, I understand there's a big game coming. Anybody know that on a Saturday? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, some are like, yeah, all right. Penn State, Ohio State, right? 
okay? Imagine these sports teams. Imagine a football coach doing this. Say, hey, let's put together a team and let's go out there and, and, and beat the teams and score as many touchdowns as we can. And everybody on the team saying, that's awesome. We're all going to practice on our own. We're all going to work on this on our own and we'll just show up game day. How good is that team going to be? Not very, right? Why is that? Because we've got to work together. There's a chemistry that comes as we get together. That's the church. Then there's some people who would say this. Well, well Dan, and, and by the way, this is, this is what a lot of young adults will say. So I love Sunday nights to hang out with young adults. And um, a lot of young adults would say this. They'd say, well, the church just seems irrelevant like there's no connection with what's going on there in the real world. Look here, say, I'm going to surprise you with what I'm going to say about that, okay? You ready? I'd say I think they're right. That the church in North America, predominantly speaking, the biggest, the biggest problem with the church in North America is the danger of irrelevancy, of it not being relevant. Here's what I mean by that. Too many churches today in our country want to make a point and aren't as concerned about making a difference. And so young people will look at that and say, I don't know, they're just kind of telling us all the things they believe and stand for, but nobody's making a difference. In fact, in fact, I think it's one of the biggest dangers for the church in the 21st century in North America. And here's what I would challenge you to do. You can go online and check this out, but Europe is covered with beautiful church buildings, beautiful church buildings that are hollow, that are empty, that are simply tourist sites where there is no transformation happening. You know why? Because they became what? Irrelevant. And all of a sudden, a place where maybe truth was proclaimed, transformation was happening, has become a place where tourists go and look at how beautiful the building is. You see, here's the thing. Irrelevancy is a danger. I came across this article. I think it's interesting. There are six marks of a church, uh, an irrelevant church, or a church that becomes irrelevant. It might be worth writing down, but here's the things that I, one of your pastors, thinks a lot about. First is this, a church that resists change becomes irrelevant. Church that resists, the, the quickest way for a church to die is to quit changing. I, I hope we will always be changing. Can, let me just say this to you, okay? I'll give you a warning. Don't get used to things being the way they are. That's what I would say. Right? It's like, well, that's the way we always did it. Some of you grew up in churches like that. And, and, and you can, that's the way we always did it till it no more matters. It becomes irrelevant. See? Uh, second is this. Uh, we can say that's never going to happen to us. Well, that never happened to us. Things are hopping here. Here's the deal. The minute we take our foot off the pedal, it begins to happen to us. Third is this. Ignore the next generation. That's why here at Grace Church, we value students. And it's not just like, that's a cool thing to say. Let me tell you, that is a value of ours, a high value of ours. So we don't, if you're newer, let me tell you, we don't babysit kids and we don't just entertain teenagers. Like we want to invest in the next generation. That's why I love seeing youthfulness around here. I love a place that's full of teenagers. Listen close. Even those that are rambunctious. Some of you laughed over here. You got teenagers. Can I, t I love when there's an energetic, rambunctious teenager. You know why? I'm going to just tell you this. I'd rather steer a moving car than try to get a parked one going. 
And when I see a rambunctious young person, I'm like, man, I wonder how we can steer that missile for something to bring glory to God and move the gospel forward faster. You see what I'm saying? And so we're not going to ignore the next generation. They're not just like, well, what do we do with them when the big people do what they're supposed to do? Right now, Ms. Sherry's investing in them, teaching them, talking to them. Number four, ignoring a changing world. You guys already know this. Uh, Rick Warren said this, when the culture outside of an organization, not just the church, changes faster than the culture inside that organization, that organization becomes irrelevant, right? Number five, when we stop taking risks. That's another way of saying when we stop moving out in faith. So the minute you stop taking risks, you begin the process of becoming irrelevant. Can I just tell you something? As we run into the next 10 years together, we should not, in this room, just look at me a second, we'll just talk a minute, we should not expect any of it to be easy. If, if the church is what Satan's trying to destroy, then, then, then we're in a battle, right? If culture's always changing, we can't coast, right? And so we gotta, we gotta keep our, our, ped, our foot on the pedal of taking risk. Moving, in fact, God said this, without faith, it's what? Impossible to please. So we're gonna trust you, God. We're gonna take some risk. We're gonna like move where we don't know how it's all gonna turn out, Okay? And number six, churches where members get their way versus give their life away. And by the way, I would tell you that's not the case here. We are full of a bunch of people who have over the years just given their life away, given their life away. Churches that have members that just want to get their way are at risk of extinction, being irrelevant. One of the things that I hear from people is, is this, and I just want to give you a picture. I'm just trying to walk through a couple of these questions, but I hear this from people. I don't like organized religion right? So like, I'm spiritual. I don't like organized religion. Let me tell you a couple things about that, okay? Jesus didn't either. You go, read his story. Don't, don't take my word for it. Jesus didn't either. He's confronting it all over the place. Listen close. I don't want to mumble, but organization is not the problem. Let me say it again. Organization is not the problem. Religion is. And so a gospel-centered movement needs some organization. You're saying, well, Why? Because the church is his body, and my body needs some organization. You're like, what are you talking about? Well, you can't see it, but I got this thing that organizes my body called a skeleton. If you looked up here and all you saw was my skeleton, what would you think? He's unhealthy. That's what you would think. If you look at a church and all you see is their organization, it's like, what? All they do is sit around and talk about constitution and this and that and what it's like okay but a church without organization would be like a body without a skeleton right and and that skeleton brings organization so that that body can move and do what the head's telling it to do and so therefore organization is not the issue in fact i think jesus organizes his church so that the body is productive and effective so at least the second question then we're done and that's this well then how in the world can I trust the church? And some of you have this question. It's full of hypocrites. So how can I trust the church? Some of you have been hurt by that, seen that up close and personal. And you're like, what do you have to say about that, preacher? I get that a lot. What do you have to say about that church full of hypocrites? You know what I say? Listen close. You can write this down if you want. It is. It's the truth. It's the truth. In fact, hypocrisy isn't simply found in the church. It's part of our world. You know what hypocrite means? It means just a, it's a theater word, to change my mask. So I'm playing this character, 
at church, everybody thinks, oh, man, you must be a godly man. Oh, man, you're just saying amen after every song. Raise your hands. And then get in the car. It's like, oh, but what are you kids doing back there? You're like, what happened, right? And I know none of you have ever done that, but I've heard it happens. So let's wear it. It, it. It's true. Jesus confronted religious hypocrisy. So what do we do about hypocrisy in the church? Let me give you three things. First, look at Jesus first. If that's your struggle, I would ask you, look at the builder before you look at the building. Look at the head before you look at the body. Look at the groom before you look at the bride. I would look at Jesus. Like, like I want you to see Jesus, not me. Because I got troubles. I got flaws. I got weaknesses. I'm an unfinished product. But the second thing I would say to you is say this. Remember, he's not done with us. We're a bride he's making beautiful. We're a building he's not finished with. And we're a body that's maturing and growing. Right? Here's the thing. It's fascinating to me. uh, Tim Keller says this. He says, the church, this is where it's right now, is a hospital for sinners. It's not a museum for saints. In a healthy church, they're taking the gospel and it's meeting people whose lives are messy and broken and destroyed. And so what you're going to have is if you go to a church that's healthy, you're going to see people whose lives are messed up, transformed. You're going to see people who are broken. And if you go to a church where everybody's prim, proper, and whatever, like, I don't know, where it looks like a museum for saints. Well, first thing I would think is I can't relate (laughs) because I'm kind of messed up. That's not even what the gospel's about. And by the way, they're probably fake and it's not true, you know? Like we're all in process. But the third thing I would say, if, if that's your hang-up, it's full of hypocrites, I would just write this down and then think about it. I would identify the irony. What I mean by that is this. If I'm standing outside the church and saying, I can't belong to a church because it's full of self-righteous hypocrites. Do you hear the irony in that? It sounds kind of self-righteous and hypocritical, for me to look at a bunch of people in process and say, y'all are self-righteous hypocrites, but I'm not. So I simply say this to people. I think there's some hypocrites in the church. I say, yep, and we got room for one more. (laughs) Right? Now listen, church, church, I got to say this, and man, I got so much to, to say that it's killing me today. Well, Dan, is that just an excuse to be hypocritical? Nope. Well, what do we do about hypocrisy in the church? Well, we don't do what some of us have been taught to do, and we don't treat it with moralism. You got to be a better person. You better be somebody who looks like a Christian, acts like a Christian. So, right, that's what creates hypocrisy, because then I feel guilty, and so then I fake you out, and I put this mask on this time, this mask on this time. You know the secret to hypocrisy is growing in the gospel. I get asked this question a lot. Let me just tell you why. Dan, every week you seem to talk about the gospel. Yeah, if I don't, I don't have anything to say. I'm not that good of a talker. Honest to goodness, guys, I don't have much to say if I can't talk about the gospel because it's the gospel that saves us and it's the gospel that transforms us. And so here's the deal. If all I'm going to do is modify my behavior, you better become better and you better work hard. It's like, no, the more I grow in understanding his love for me and his commitment to me and what he's done for me, the more all of a sudden what he says is happens is I mature and transform. I don't just kind of look the part and wear the mask, right? And then some people, their hang up is this. The church has done so much harm in history. You can look at history and... 
Look at all the things the church has done. Some of you like the fanaticism of the church, you know, it's blowing up abortion clinics and things like that. Some of you have relationships, you know, you're like fundamentalism isn't fun. People I know go to church aren't kind. Some of that's true. It's just being honest. I know people who would call themselves Christians and they're not fun. And they're judgmental. I turn the news on. I see people walking around with signs that say burn in hell, fill in the blank, whatever group they don't like. I guess my comment would be twofold when it comes to that being my hang-up. Can we just agree that not everything done in the name of Jesus is really what Jesus is doing? Can we just say that? Like just because it's done in the name of Jesus doesn't mean that Jesus is doing it. You know, like I have a buddy of mine in Indiana... um, he's my age, he's bald like me, we could be brothers. That wasn't funny, by the way, some of you laughed, but but he's bald like me. Um, And um, so when I lived in Indiana, some of you remember this when I moved, I had this car that I love, I'm still grieving, it's old blue Oldsmobile I used to drive around. And uh, when I moved here, I had to drive the U-Haul, and so I had to leave that car there, and he was coming to visit our family four weeks later. And so he drove my car around Columbia City, Indiana for four weeks. My friend, I didn't tell you this, is not a follower of Christ. Made no bones about it. But we had a great relationship. We played tennis together. We'd golf. We'd do stuff together. He said this to me. He said, I'm going to spend four weeks driving your car around. I look like you. I'm going to give people the finger, swear out the window, stuff like that. <laughs> I looked at him. I said, please don't. That's <laughs> what I said, you know. But imagine he did. You know, and imagine being like, oh, man, there goes Dan in this car because everybody knew my car, right? You see, everything done in the name of Jesus isn't what Jesus is doing. And when the church gets its eyes off the gospel, we have dark spots, guys. But can we reverse that? And when the church has its eyes on the gospel, listens to the head, follows the groom, the church has done some amazing things. You can look at the church and see anywhere the church has gone and the gospel has been, been on fire. Listen to me. The status of women has been elevated. You do the church history. Kids have been valued. The marginalized have been taken care of. Slavery. Church was part of that. And then all of a sudden, as a result of three evangelists, all of a sudden we see the, the, the redeeming value hitting something that is very close to our American history. You see, here's the deal. When the church is doing what the head calls it to do, following its groom, allowing Jesus to build it, it is the most sacrificial, loving, giving organism on the planet. Which leads to this question. And I'm literally going to fly through. Some of you are like sitting here like, well, then how do I choose a church? It's an interesting question to say in, in, a, in a church building with church people gathered. I'd, lo- I'd hope that you hang out here with us. But some of you are like, well, I got a buddy in Arizona or whatever it might be. Or some of you are like, I'm not sure this is the place for me. How do I choose a church? Let's just, three questions, we're done. In choosing a church, I would look to Jesus. Why? He's the head, he's the, he's the groom, he's the builder. Here's what it says about Jesus. He's full of what? Grace and truth. I would ask myself three questions. These aren't the only questions, but at least these three questions. When you want to know about a church, I would ask this question first. Do they communicate the truth of the gospel? When you go there, do they communicate about Jesus? If you go to a church and they don't talk about Jesus, 
He's the builder. He's the groom. He's the head. It's like, whoa. If they're not committed to the truth of God's word, he said, I'm the truth. I'm full of truth. Let me just tell you this. There's tons of churches doing great things in their community who aren't communicating the truth of God's word. They're benevolent. They're humanitarian. So I would ask, are they communicating the truth? Do they open their Bible? Are they committed to their Bible, to to what God has to say? Second, do they demonstrate the grace of the gospel? Do they look a little bit like Jesus? (laughs) Are they kind? Do they value kids? Do they help the marginalized? Are they involved in their community? Can I tell you something? I know there are churches that every Sunday will preach right from God's word. They'll yell it, they'll scream it, they're convicted of it, and yet they're unkind. Jesus said, I'm full of truth, but I'm also full of grace. And so I gotta ask, do they communicate the truth? Do they demonstrate the grace of the gospel? And then I gotta ask this question. Are they growing in the truth and the grace of the gospel? We say, why is that up there? Because if you go to a church where they they somehow communicate to you, we've arrived. We're all that in a bag of chips, (laughs) you know? I would be really skeptical. You know why? Because we're a body that's growing. We're a building in process. We're a bride he's making beautiful. And I would tell you this, if I showed up at a church like that, I'm not sure I'd fit in real well. You know why? Because I'm in process. I'm growing. And I love the fact that you're here, and I'd love for us to take this journey together. You know why? Because in Ephesians, I know you put your Bibles away, but in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, you don't need to look there. I'll tell you what it says. This is what it says about the church. If you're a young adult, really dial in. You see, it's one thing to say, I'm going to leave the church, but here's what God says about the church. God says, I'm able to do immeasurably more than you could ever ask or imagine in the church to bring glory to myself through Christ Jesus throughout all generations. So God, help us to see your vision for the church. Some of us have been hurt by the church. Some of us are skeptical of the church. Some of us are more introverted and we're afraid of the church. So God, I pray that you'd help us to see the beauty of your body in action, the beauty of your building, literally pointing people to the glory of the gospel. I'm so glad we're the objects of your sacrificial love. I'm so glad that you are committed to making us beautiful and you ain't done with us yet. Some in this room, Father, have been hurt in unspeakable ways. And I realize maybe it's not my place, but I want to say in their presence, I am so sorry. I am sorry that in the name of Jesus, things like that have happened. And my prayer is this, is that you would provide healing, maybe even as a result of being here. And that you would not only provide healing, but God, they would see their place, their part in what you're doing. Your church is amazing. I pray for my young adult friends that are sitting in this room, that they might capture a vision for your church in your world, turning the lights bright on Christ. I love you, Lord, and thank you for loving us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, good hanging out with you guys today. Can't wait to see you next week. Have a great day. Lord bless you as you go.